the heading is Elijah and Obadiah. We don't have a dog. If we did, I would call it Obadiah. It's just one of those names that's very endearing. Just, but that's nothing, nothing to do with the sermon at all. And we haven't got a dog. So, 1 Kings 18 and verse 1. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Brackets. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. And we take up our reading in verse 17. For the sake of time, there's a long uh, account here. Obadiah was instrumental in bringing together Elijah and Ahab. And so, here is their encounter. Verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, the people of God, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets Get two bulls for us, let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. 
At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench round it large enough to hold two seers, fifteen liters. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood. Do it again, he said to them. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God, the Lord. He is God. Well, that's our reading, and I want to make some brief uh, comments uh, on this as we think about coming round the Lord's table. This is part of our series as we're looking in the life of Elijah. And we're looking at the heading, The God Who Answers by Fire. How often have you been in a situation where somebody has said to you, prove it. Prove it. In the context of where we are at in our society at this particular time in the United Kingdom at least, trust and confidence have worn very thin. If people had cause unfairly in the past to criticize politicians, people now feel that it is utterly justified and a sense of cynicism is prevailing with the pending elections 
And the casualty of it may not just be the Labour Party or the Conservative Party, but democracy itself. And people might rightly want to say to folk in high office with responsibility, prove it. Prove it. Prove that you are trustworthy. Or let's come within the church. I'm not just simply saying about the, the difficulty that's taken place in the Catholic Church with uh, priests and child abuse. Or think about relationships where trust has broken down. Or think about marriages and relationships. At a given time, husband or wife may say to one another, knowing each other and knowing all that's going on, prove it. Prove that you really love me. Prove it. So it's not just only between people or politicians, or priests, husband and wife or parents, but actually between us and God as well. Prove it is the catchphrase. Now it's a tricky one because we can't dictate to God. However, he is the God who responds to the prayer of faith in given situations. I guess many people today, among your colleagues or within your wider family, who are not believers, may demand proof. Prove it. Where is God? And particularly, where is God in given situations? If you are... Uh, one of the folk who watch songs of praise, you'll have seen the interview with the Archbishop of Canterbury as he, uh, this evening as he was in the state's neighbouring building when the Twin Towers were bombed. And uh, what he said was they took refuge in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of a hut and it was one of the builders that said, we should pray. But people still ask with that backdrop, prove it, where is God? Where is God? His existence, his power, his grace and his love because it seems to me it is rather absent. Or, oh, think about the cross. It's part of our series. We were looking at this in Cornerstone this morning when people at the cross were really saying to Jesus, okay, if you are who you say you are, if you are the chosen, the Holy One of God, come down, prove it, come down. But he was proving who he was by not coming down. But they didn't see it. So we can't have an attitude of belligerence or confrontation or a stubborn spirit that we are dictating the terms to God. However, there are times, and this is what we're looking at now, quite unique in the whole life of the children of Israel. It's a major watershed in their life where idolatry, which plagued them and dominated their lives, is once and for all held back. A major turning point in the life of God's people. There are times, there are seasons, unique events when he reveals his power and demonstrates his glory, what we call in modern times revivals, exceptional, unusual, remarkable awakenings. 
There are times like that. Would to God that we should live through such a time. He demonstrates his power and his presence. And it's often in response to prayer. And often as it seems the rather impoverished, weak and feeble prayers of God's people. The whole history of awakenings and revivals come from faithful people who have not given up on praying together, however busy their lives are. If my people, called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a great prayer, isn't it? Let's just turn to, we only have a few cross-references, actually only this one, yes. Turn to the book of James, just to see how the New Testament makes a comment on uh, the life of Elijah. You have it in James chapter 5, it's page 1216. Page 1216 in the Church Bible, James chapter 5. And just uh, see what's the New Testament, looking back on this event that we've read, okay? Verse 17, and it comes under this long section, the prayer of faith. We will break into it here at verse 17. And here is a, here's a statement, and it, it, it will come out in the series, that uh, Elijah is no super saint. The King James Version is much more direct. It says, he's a man of like passion. Our weaknesses and our besetting sins were true with Elijah as well. Verse 17, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. It's just a comment. If you like, it's a summary of everything that we've read there. We'll just come back then to this, and let's try to work on more application uh, as we think about this. That's the point, though. God does respond to the prayers of his people, however feeble they might seem. So we've just got two things to say. The first is this, you have uh, leaders in contrast. And I had not noticed this, and, and the sermon has taken an unusual twist as I was preparing this. Come back to 1 Kings 18, and we have leaders in contrast. Obadiah and Elijah. Now look at Obadiah verses 3 and 4. That came out in our reading. It says there that he was a devout man. He was what you might call a sort of a a secret disciple. He had to be. The context in which he found himself. I was trying to illustrate what what was this really like. Well, if you were part of the, the, the culture in Iraq before the war, under the regime of Saddam Hussein, where even his own family he would have taken out and shot and killed. People are afraid. It's a regime of fear and terror. And already there are casualties here. Some of the prophets have been killed under Jezebel. Here is this one believer, Obadiah. And it says there in verse 3, halfway through in brackets, a little sort of a, a character comment on him. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. Look, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets 
And you know the, the proverb, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put all the prophets in one cave. Fifty in one, fifty in another. Giving them food and water so that at risk to himself, with all people who are not trustworthy, You couldn't want somebody more different than Elijah. It was, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? He, he's courageous, he's quiet, he's godly. He's one of these unsung heroes that when we get to glory, we will be having some surprises. A classic unsung hero. And in total contrast, I mean, you would never have a series on the life of Obadiah. In total contrast, here is Elijah. If you, were, if you read um, you know, verses 7 right through to about uh, 14 there, you see how Elijah did not understand him. It's almost as if Elijah would look down upon Obadiah, as if he had compromised his faith, that he should have no part of that palace. And yet... It is interesting, isn't it? Did you notice? Just turn over the page uh, for a moment. Uh, and verse 22. Just look at this. In the light of what we've read before. Uh, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Excuse me, Elijah, not so. He kept saying this like, I am the one. You know, there, there are preachers and people, Christians like that. They think they're the only people who are doing anything. And here is this quiet... I didn't know this was going to come out in the sermon. And it challenged me a great deal. So when, when you go back home and you go to work and you're in that hospital ward and you're in that office and you're in that classroom, wherever you are, might be just as powerful, perhaps more so, that you could not be on Mount Carmel and call for fire to fall down from heaven, but be a godly witness at personal cost. Oh, that's a very powerful thing. If you take nothing from the sermon, take that. That God is at work. In contrast to Elijah, and I don't need to say much about him, he is confident, sometimes opinionated, he's confrontational, he's spoiling for a fight, and he's very charismatic and has a big following. Now, I'm not saying that to put him down. I'm only saying it for this reason. And this is the point, if it isn't obvious. God uses both. We tend to think, don't we, be honest, that God's got to use somebody like Elijah. I mean, look at him. But, you know, me? Well, I hope you will stop saying that. That's the point. God uses both. And if that's the point, the application, as it is when you get to verse 21, for instance, is this. And when you think about the people of God... What do you make of this? Why don't they make a response? He, Elijah challenges them. Well, that's what he was good at. He's confrontational. Why are you wavering between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. And the response? Nothing. It's the classic nondescript. And the application is surely this, that God cannot use anyone who sits on the fence. Uh, I was in Cornerstone this morning. I met a very uh, fine young lady who's just finished university and she's working for a trust. 
going into schools. And I said, well, what is the trust? She said, um, off the fence. Well, I said, I've never heard of the, that, that trust before. And she said, uh, well, that's what it's called. And I said, um, where does it come from? And she said, I don't know. Well, I said, maybe it's from Gamaliel. She said, who's he? Well, I said, he's in the New Testament. Read Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel sat on the fence. While the apostles are in this cauldron of persecution, he in his wisdom, detached from the emotion, says, look, don't give these early apostles a hard time. If this is of God, no one can stop it. But if not, it'll come to nothing. So, sit on the fence. People like Gamaliel who know all the answers and not much help. Nor the people of God here, even though they're a covenant people. Do you see the point? Whatever your temperament, God can use you. But whatever your gifts, if you're on the fence, he can't. And if it isn't obvious in terms of application and the challenge, the next verse is this. Sometimes leaders lack credibility, as Elijah did. He got his gifts and his calling out of perspective. He is not the only one. And he keeps saying it. And in the end, as we shall see, God has to challenge him about it. But God still used him. And if we think that somehow we have to reach a certain stage of spiritual perfection before God can use us, we might live out our lives and die and not be used. Well, those are the leaders in contrast and now the leaders in conflict. This is the second and move a bit quicker here. The prophets of Baal under King Ahab. Ahab, of course, who was a weak king manipulated by his wife who was ruthless, Jezebel. And the scene is set, and Elijah continues to pressurize the priests using great irony and sarcasm. Pity we couldn't spend more time on this. He almost says, you know, where is your God? Is he, is he indisposed? Has he gone to the bathroom? Is he on a journey? Has he forgotten you? Using great irony like this. And then... The prophet and Jehovah with Elijah. And so verses 30 to 32, and, and you, you, you're familiar from the reading. Elijah draws attention to a couple of things. He draws attention to the covenant that God has made. The people had forgotten that. He reminds them. Because when God makes a covenant, he will not break it. Even if we forget it, even if we should marginalize it, the covenant holds good. And you see what he does in a very symbolic way, which we may not fully appreciate. Verse 31, Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be the Israel, favored of God. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and so on and so forth. It may not seem much, but it's a very powerful thing that he does. And you see also in verse 37, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you are the Lord. And here's a lovely little phrase, isn't it? He says, and that you are turning their hearts back. Not they are turning their hearts back to you. Because they are stubborn and hard and ruthless. You are turning their hearts. 
You are doing that. And that's the purpose of God's, uh, of Elijah's prayer, ultimately. Not, not simply to show who's the greatest, not that. To show who is a faithful and covenant-keeping God. So let's very quickly look at f- four personal lessons. This then is, if you like, oh, the, 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 the sort of the sermon's over. This is now not what I'm saying, but what it means. This is what, this is all application. When you or I are in God's will, and that's a bit subjective, because sometimes it's difficult to know, but when we are sure we are where God wants us to be, then nothing can stop us. You really have to believe that, that nothing can stop us when we are in the will of God. We may be outnumbered, may be marginalized and criticized. Humanly speaking, it doesn't look very good. But when we are in the will of God, nothing can stop us. Now, when you think, for instance, let's apply it to where we're at, um, the submission of the plans for the extension and many people who are upset by this. What we have to prove as a church is this. If this is God's will for us, then nothing can stop us or no one. That surely is the application that, that we, can, we can derive from the God who keeps his covenant. Secondly, divided loyalty is as wrong as idolatry. Divided loyalty is as wrong as idolatry. The easiest thing to do when outnumbered is to switch into a mode of mediocrity. Don't rock the boat. Don't upset people. Stay neutral. Stay neutral. And that's what the people had done. And when Elijah said to them, if God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. What's their response? There isn't one. It's very easy, isn't it, when you're not involved. Very easy. Thirdly, at the end of the day, our most effective tool, what a surprise, in all of this, is the most neglected one. Our most effective tool is to pray to God. To come to Him. And to ask for His help. And demonstrate that we need Him more than money, more than gifts, more than having the right contacts, more than being in the right place at the right time. And lastly, we must never underestimate the impact of one life that is dedicated to God. And at this point, I feel that we should almost look at Obadiah, not Elijah. He may well have achieved more. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. But he's not in the limelight, is he? But he's God's man, God's woman, in a given place at a given time. And that's our calling. We must never underestimate the impact of one life 
that is actually committed to God. God answers by fire. It may be the refining fire to cleanse and purge and renew us. But he does answer. And even when it doesn't seem like that to us, he does. And we really have to trust him.